You know, we've been talking about the whole topic of weight, and David is in a waiting position, waiting to become king. But all of us in life are waiting for something. And if you aren't waiting right now, you say, no, I'm not, you will be waiting for something at some point. So we all are in this kind of this waiting game that we play in life. And waiting can be hard. And one of the things that happens is sometimes waiting has an unexpected visitor, and he's the worst possible visitor you can have, and his name is tragedy. Tragedy will come while we're waiting. It's usually unexpected. Uh, we find tragedy especially during times of warfare. I think of the American Civil War. 620,000 people died in the American Civil War. To put that in perspective, more people died in the Civil War than in all the other battles combined in American history until recently, and it's still very close in number. There wasn't a family in America that wasn't somehow affected by that war. Um, the bloodiest battle of the war was Gettysburg. 51,000 people died. It was... It was the turning point of the war, but at that point they weren't for certain that it was going to work out. The war only lasted four years. Four years doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're fighting in a war, four years is interminable. It just seems like it will never, never end. And so after this was all over, they didn't know what to do. They were so horrified with what had just taken place that they decided to establish the first national cemetery in American history at Gettysburg. And they brought in the greatest orator in America, a man by the name of Edward Everett. He was a great politician and a great professor and um, just a great speaker. He was the protege of Daniel Webster. And he spoke for, eloquently for two and a half hours. Um, he could do that because people didn't have uh, iPhones then. So, so he went uninterrupted and he spoke. And, you know, everybody thought he said he did a good job. And then they asked the president to come step up and make a few comments before they, you know, in commemorating it. And Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, stood up, put on his spectacles, and read for three minutes. And when he was done, there was just silence. People were so hit by how profound his words were. But they didn't know for sure. He thought, did I do say something wrong? And later, Everett wrote him and said, you said more in three minutes than I said in two and a half hours. But what he said kind of summarized war as we see it today. Um, and many of you maybe, you know, I'm sure you've heard the Gettysburg Address, but I just want to put this in context for us because you'll see that it ties into what we're talking about today. The very end of it reads as follows. Uh, Lincoln wrote and said, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it. Far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here. But it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Have you heard that before? It's probably the greatest lament written in American history. 
But what's interesting is it's not the, the first. Do you know that lamentations like that go back centuries? And we're going to look at one today from the year 1000 BC, approximately. Because David was faced with a similar tragedy. David is waiting to become king. And remember, they were getting ready to fight a battle, and the Philistines were trying to get him to fight against Saul because they knew that Saul was trying to seek David's life. But God graciously gets David out of that situation. He goes back to his home in Ziklag, and when he gets there, he finds out that his town's been leveled by the treacherous Amalekites and that they have kidnapped his family and other families, and they've taken all their goods, and he goes after them, and he gets all of that back, and he comes back, and he's settling in to Ziklag, and he's just, it's been really a, a bad few days. And they're kind of worn out. And while they're getting things back together, they have a visitor. And the visitor is going to tell them the results of the Battle of Gilboa, one of the most tragic events in the history of Israel. So we'll talk about responding to tragedy today. And we're going to start by looking at the first 16 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 1. It reads, After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Malachites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked, tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. He's leaning on his, literally dying because he had the spear in him. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I, I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan for the army of Yahweh and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I am a son of an alien, a Malachite, he answered. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. So we're going to talk today a little bit here about seeking closure when we have tragedy in our lives. The first thing that happens here is this guy comes to town and he looks pretty messed up. I mean, he's all dirty and everything. And he comes and he talks to him. They bring him to Captain David and he, you know, bows down to him and talks to him. And the gist of it is, is this, that the guy is telling him this story of that, about the war. And it's not like David, it's not like when we have a sporting event and somebody comes in, they say, I, I know what happened. And he, don't tell me, it's, I've taped it, right? You know, don't, don't tell me, I'll go watch the tape later. Uh, he can't. He can't do that. He doesn't know what happened. He can't turn on, you know, the news and say, what happened? He has no idea. He knows there's been a battle. He doesn't know what happened. So he's like, what happened? And the guy tells him. And the problem is, is what the guy tells him disagrees with what we learned in the last chapter of the last book. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 31, it's a little different story. 
Uh, they're very close, but there's a difference. And the difference is in, in 1 Samuel 31, it says that Saul was shot by ar- archers. And he had, he had arrows in him, and he was dying. And he turned to his armor bearer, and he said, well, you kill me, because he was somewhat of a cowardly man. He was afraid of what they might do if they found him still alive. And so he said, no, I won't kill you. You're Yahweh's anointed. You're the Lord's anointed. So he said, okay, I'll kill myself. So he took his, his spear, and he killed himself. This guy comes in and says, no, that's not what happened. Uh, he just went on his sword, tried to kill, on his spirit, tried to kill himself, then asked me to finish him off. Who's telling the truth? I'll tell you, it's not really that hard when you figure out that these two books were originally one book. It's the same author. He told the truth when he told the story the first time. That changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Start putting it together, and you start figuring out what's happening here. This young man was going in as a scavenger to go over people and find what he could and get things out of them, get their their money or belongings for himself before the soldiers came. And when he went through, he found that Saul was there, and he had his gold armband and his his, um, crown, and he thought, I'm going to take this to David, because now that Saul's dead and his sons are dead, who's going to probably be the next king? I'm going to get in with him. And so he goes to David, and he essentially lies to him. Because he figures, if I know David is having problems with Saul, so if I tell him I kill Saul, I'm a hero. But at the same time, if I tell him I killed the Lord, Lord's anointed, that's not good, so I'll make up this story that I killed him while he was dying, that he asked me to. And that way it'll be excusable, and I'll be a hero. So this is, this is sort of like at, at the height of the war on terror back in Afghanistan, if a guy who's associated with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda comes into a military camp and says, here's the hat and here's the three stars of a general that I recently killed. But, but the reason I killed him, because he asked me to, he said he wasn't feeling it, he was, he was trying to kill himself and he couldn't, and he gave me his revolver and I just killed him. How would that go? Depends on the general. Um, no, no, it, was, it would be horrible, wouldn't it? I mean, people, I mean, he wouldn't last real long, probably. They would have to, to take care of that situation. So this is the situation. Now, he's miscalculated. He thought that David's going to be happy. David and the men are not happy. They were upset with Saul, but David has softened that some because he is God's anointed, and, and David loves him. But also, Jonathan, is, Jonathan and David are like the two heroes of Israel. They're like the dynamic duel. And Jonathan is dead. Everybody was praying that Saul would die so Jonathan could become king. But now Jonathan is dead. And all these great warriors, some of them their brothers, are dead. These people are really upset. And so David goes back to him and basically says, I want all the information. The guy's an Amalekite. Saul, listen to the irony of ironies. Saul was told by God to destroy all the Amalekites because they were such treacherous, horrible, wicked people. He didn't. And as he's dying, an Amalekite comes and finds all of his goods. The Malachites are the people that had sacked David's land. So the Malachites were not good guys. This guy says, I'm an Amalekite, but I'm also an alien. My dad's an alien. I've been living in Israel all my life. I know all the laws of Israel. Well, did you know the law that you're not supposed to kill Yahweh's anointed? I've had chances and I didn't do it. And you felt that it was okay to just go ahead and kill him. The law of the land is you murder the king, you get executed. There's nobody now in charge. So I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. And it's a barbaric world. It took him out. So the question is, how is this relevant for us today? Somebody comes to you with bad news. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's not where we're going with this. But I mean, yeah, so okay. What does it mean then? 
Well, I think there's a couple things that hit me, is there's three things David does in response to this horrific situation. Three things that he does. The first thing he does, and they're all kind of bringing closure to the situation. The first thing that he does is he says, give me the information. How did this happen? Do you notice that that's one of the best things you can do with grief? I remember a horrible situation once where a young man um, was killed in a skiing accident. And his parents, what they wanted to do is go to that place, I think they did, and find out where he died. They wanted all the information. You read that in the news. You know, when somebody gets killed, parents want to know all the information. We want to know what happened. I, I need closure. I need to know what happened. And that's what David does. The second thing he does is he weeps and he cries. In our culture, we often say, oh, forgive me, I'm, I'm crying too much. And in other cultures, they're like, what's wrong? Why aren't you crying? You know, that's, God gave us tear ducts for this, you know. When, when things are sad, you weep, you cry, you go through sadness. And David does that. And then the last thing he does is basically he does what he can to prevent this problem from, from continuing on. He brings as much justice to the situation as he can. Um, if, if something is happening, we see this a lot, you know, when there's shootings and so forth, we try to figure out, and sometimes we can go too far, but we try to figure out why this happened and what we can do to prevent it in the future. If we have like a child, sadly, and I've known several situations like this where they get into the swimming pool and they're, they're hurt or, or die, we figure out what we can do to make sure that the gates are closed in the future so that that doesn't happen again, right? We try to bring closure to the situation. And so we see David doing that in three different ways. He's trying to work, work it through. He gets the, gets the information, he weeps over it, and he does the best he can to try to prevent this kind of situation from happening again. He tries to bring closure to it. I remember when we lost our son, we went to a grief group, and I, a lot of that is still foggy, but uh, in this grief group, I remember one thing that I've shared, and I know I've shared with many others before because it was helpful to me, is uh, the leader of the group said that if you suppress grief, it's like taking a a beach ball, and trying to force it into the water. What happens? It's going to come up. If you try to avoid grief, you're going to lose. It'll beat you. You can't do that. It will affect your health. I know for myself personally, I've had some health issues that have come out of me suppressing grief more than I should, even though I've tried not to. Um, it will affect you emotionally. It will affect you mentally. It can make you a bitter, angry person. Um, and some people just try to live in la-la land and they just become emotionally stunted like children and aren't really that functional in life. You have to deal with grief. And David gives us an example. He deals with grief. And then another thing that you can do is write a lament. You can lament your losses. And David does that. And for the rest of today, we're just going to take a look at what he has to say. His Gettysburg Address, okay? This is David's Gettysburg Address. Starts in verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, 
The bow of Jonathan did not, re- did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You are very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapon of war, weapons of war have perished. So David gives this lament, and he, and he says later it's the, the lament of the bow was probably the name of it. Jonathan several times is mentioned for his ability with, as an archer. And so he is the highlight here, and we'll see it as we go along. The main hero that he, he focuses on is Jonathan, who was really one of, along with David, probably the two greatest heroes in Israel at the time. And so he, he's mentioning this in that way that it's part of the lament of the bow. And he says, you can find it in the book of Jasher. And you can go ahead and Google that. Um, You're not going to find it. The book of Jasher doesn't exist anymore. I think they're making a new Indiana Jones movie on it. Um, But it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's one of those things like, like the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is. But it did exist at one time, and we have several references to it. But he tells us some things that are really interesting. The main thing he tells us is that the mighty have fallen. Did you catch that? That's the theme. The mighty have fallen in battle. These great warriors have fallen in battle. One thing that, he, you know, so he, he basically sets it all up, and this is how it works. The mighty have fallen. He's, he's saying rhetorically, I, I hope that the, the people in, in the Philistines don't get too excited about this. They, I hope they don't realize it. And then he says at the end, I hope that our people, our women back home, weep over this and realize how bad it is. And then he says the mighty have fallen. And then in the middle of it, he talks about you know, he wishes Mount Gilboa wouldn't do too well because it's so horrible there. And he starts talking about the main heroes, Saul and Jonathan. A couple things to touch on. One is it's, it doesn't talk a lot about God here, although it's couched in, in the language of a prayer. Um, he goes at the beginning. and Here's something that you missed. Everybody in this room missed it. The first two words, your glory, you wouldn't catch it, but the translation is a difficult translation. In Hebrew, it's better rendered your gazelle or your deer has been slain. Now, that wouldn't make a lot of sense to us, so they put your glory, but when you stop and think about it, who was the gazelle? Who was the man who ran fleet-footed on the mountains and shot people with his bows and arrows? It was Jonathan. He's talking about Jonathan. He's saying, Jonathan, and they probably, that might have even been a nickname for Jonathan. Your gazelle, your deer, is now dead. He lies slain. And so he, he, he puts that down, and then he says, this is just so sad. This is so sad. It's so horrible. And he gets in that middle, and you know, we might say, that seems kind of harsh that he wants there to be no rain or anything on Mount Gilboa. Why is he being so hard on Mount Gilboa? But think about, go back to our national cemeteries. Gettysburg Cemetery took over a lot of farmland. That wasn't very practical. But people just basically said it's hard to, to even farm here anymore after what happened. And that's what David's saying. I don't even want to go to Mount Gilboa anymore. It just makes me sink to think of what happened. They had their, their shields, and they were made of leather, and so they would use oil to preserve the shields. He says, those shields are defiled in blood now. They're no good. And then he starts to talk about Saul and Jonathan. Um, and he, 
And he, you know, he, he says that, um, he says Jonathan's bow, you know, he was so good with his bow. And he's not shooting it anymore, but he took some people out apparently with it. And Saul, Saul was an old man. He must have been close to 70 years of age. You realize that if you calculate it correctly, he was probably just giving orders. But Saul was a head taller than every other man in Israel. He was a big man. And if people got close, he still had his sword to fight them off. They fought to the end together. And after he says that, he drops down and he says that in life they were loved and gracious. And that is uh, instructive for us. If you ever do a memorial, if you ever ask to speak at somebody's memorial, um, it's best to concentrate on the positive aspects of their life. Don't, don't be dishonest. Don't say they never complained, which people say all the time, because they always, everybody complains. So don't be dishonest. Don't try to paint them better than they were, but, but be honest, but, but concentrate on the good things. I did a memorial service once for a guy, and I said he was a, he was a rough old cuss. And, uh, you know, and everybody came up to me and thanked me because he was, and he was proud of that. Um, but that's not typical, right? You know, um, in, in typical language, you know, you, you don't concentrate on that. Saul had some rough things about him, but he had some good things too. Saul was the hero of Israel. Saul, in 40 years, had sustained independence for Israel. Saul had been a great warrior. And we have pictures of him in his interaction with David and so forth that shows that he could be very tender and loving. He also was said to be a great prophet when he was younger, great speaker, very motivational individual. So Saul had that. He was David's hero as a boy probably growing up. He was the man who launched David's career. He was his former father-in-law. So there were things there. They had a relationship. But Saul, you know, becomes self-centered. Saul had gotten his eyes off of God. Saul had gotten his eyes so much on himself that it had become hardened. And the harder he got, the worse things got for him. Until finally he was influenced by demonic forces and he began to, to have problems with his sanity and began to do some bad things. Over the last 10 years, he had been a bad ruler. He had been corrupt. He had been tyrannical. He had been cruel. And he had been so obsessed with trying to get David and taking care of internal affairs that he had not taken care of external affairs and things were falling apart. But David doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the good side of, of Saul. Now when he talks about Jonathan, he can say that he was loving and gracious. Jonathan was there when Samuel, the great prophet and priest, told his father, because of your hard heart towards God, I'm taking your kingdom away from you, God says, and I'm giving it to a new man. And when David came along, he recognized that David was the man who was going to take his crown, the crown that should rightfully be his. And you know how he responded? He said, God's will be done. I will be your loyal lieutenant. When I get that crown, I'm giving it to you. You're going to be king, and I'll be right by your side. How would you like to have a friend like that? And so he says, he was a, he was a great man. Um, and so he's, he's recognizing this. And then he says, in death they were not parted. I don't think Jonathan was really that devoted to his dad at the end, that loyal to him. He was more loyal to the kingdom and loyal to David. He was hoping that he could transition the crown to David's head one day. But still, he stayed by his dad's side, and so David uh, pulls that out and says that was a good thing. He says they were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. That's a great line. And it, again, it kind of fits their personality and giftedness. The more we look at this, Jonathan, Jonathan was kind of the swift one. He was swift. He was quick. Uh, when we go to some of his studies, one of the greatest 
victories in Israel's history was recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And Jonathan was the hero of that. He was clever. He was sneaky. He was shifty in battle. He got behind the lines with one other man with him, and he basically caused havoc and won the battle. That's how he was. Jonathan, if you go to the Lord of the Rings, Jonathan is Legolas. You know, he's the, he's the elfin um, warrior with the, with the bow and arrow. He's that kind of guy. And he's, he's kind of quiet. You know, he's kind of, he's, he kind of gets guys along and he mentors them and works with them. He's that kind of a personality. Um, Saul is this great big guy who is this great warrior in his younger days. He's the one who's strong as a lion. And so he paints a picture of both of them. And then he says the mighty have fallen. And right there he's done. He's finished it. That's a nice lament. Pretty well put together. But he can't stop. He has to go on and talk more about Jonathan because he's so dear to him and also to everybody. Everybody loves Jonathan. So he says, Jonathan's there. He says, I, 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 I grieve for you as if you were my brother. You're not really my brother. You were my brother-in-law, but you're my covenantal brother. You're my blood brother. We made a commitment together. We're brothers, as we would say today, in the Lord. Uh, we have a relationship with one another. He says, you are very dear to me or literally very attractive to me. There was something about you that draw, drew me to you. Um, something about you that drew other people to you. There was something very powerful about you, Jonathan. And then he says, your love for me or your loyal commitment and love to me was wonderful. The word wonderful is beyond words. You know, so he said, well, explain that for me, David. How wonderful was this love? He says, more wonderful than that of women. And then he concludes it again with, you know, the mighty have fallen and the warriors, you know, the, the weapons of war, the warriors have, are now gone. And we say, David, what were you thinking there? What did you mean by that? Um, a lot of people have. This is one of the most controversial passages in all the Old Testament. And there are homosexual scholars who feel quite certain that this is an example of a gay relationship between uh, David and Jonathan. And in our day and in our culture, um, that might be what we would suspect. The problem is they were still under the Mosaic Law. If that's what this was he would not have written it publicly. You can be certain that Israel would find gay rights inconceivable. Um, and in the teachings that they have, if you go back and read the Mosaic Law, if he was going to say this, he'd be putting himself in danger. He would not be able to become king, and he could even lose his life. And he wouldn't teach everybody to learn this. So is it possible that in their culture at that time, or at any time, that this could have another meaning? What would that meaning be? Well, I think that men and women have the, uh, have the opportunity to have a relationship. A man and wife can have a relationship of emotional and physical depth that you can't have with the other gender. Having said that, there are things with the other gender, you know, with your own gender that you, have, that you don't have with your wife. You know, I mean, there are guys, things I can talk to about guys with that I can't talk to my wife with. My wife, my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law are, are here today. We're going to go out afterwards and spend some time together. Sometimes when I'm with these three ladies, much as I love them, it's like speaking with aliens, you know? <laughs> they're, they're, on, they're talking on another track. When I'm with my buddies, we're talking on our track. You see what I'm saying? And so there's this ability to have a closeness with a guy that you can't have with a woman. And that's why it's so important, even when you're married, um, to have those relationships. I know sometimes I, I regret, I think sometimes we were trying so hard to have this good marriage that I wish I would have spent a little bit more time with some of my buddies. But I still do. You know, I have buddies. I mean, I have guys 
that I, I'm sorry about that, but, but, sorry. but I mean, she, and then the same thing we have, she has her girlfriends. I have my guys and we spend a lot of time with each other, but we still have our pals, you know, and you need to have that. Um, I, I have some of the guys I played football with back in high school. I still talk to those guys almost every month, one of them, you know, and so you have those people to support you in your relationship. When I was younger, you know, I'd have, you know, women that were friends when I was single. I still have women that are friends, but usually they're they're almost all you know, within the context of our marriage. I don't have those close relationships with women that I used to because I'm married. I have my wife. Um, and those close relationships come with people generally that are the same gender, are my pals. I think that's what he's saying here. Okay? So, so that kind of gives us a perspective. Now, what I want to talk about here is I want to talk at the end about lamenting our losses and some practical applications for us. First of all, it's right out of lament. Right out of lament. You know, I remember... Um, Years ago, when I was in seminary, I had a professor. Um, he was our Greek professor, and he was also in charge of, um, he's not only a Greek professor, but he was also in charge of our classroom, you know, and stuff. He was like the, the head class, you know, was the, our home class. And this guy was a really good guy, and really loved him. He was a real character. His name was Dr. Kaufman. He, had these, he was six feet five. He had these giant hands. He would swing them around when he talked. If you weren't paying attention, he'd take an eraser and throw it at you. And he had all these funny sayings like, you know, while we're up so high, let's try to work on another question. And he would say, uh, I resemble that remark. Uh, one time I told him I did poorly on a test and he said, um, don't worry about it, Ron. Uh, rum wasn't burned in a day. And, he had all, and you go into his office to see him and he would have, he would have a, a parking meter there in front of his desk. I mean, this guy was just absolute character, um, but he, was, he could be a loving papa bear. And I remember I took him home and my newlywed wife, I think, you know, overcooked the meal or something, and he was so gracious, and he gave you tips, and he was so loving. She just fell in love with him. And, but we had this great relationship with Dr. Kaufman, but he was having a hard time. His wife had had surgery, and they had an accident, and she'd ended up in a convalescent hospital. And he was trying to pay for her. He was 68, and it was time for him to school. He had to retire at 68. He had a book that they were using at Harvard, but he wasn't getting royalties for it. And he was having all these struggles. Then he had hernia surgery and he took medication and that caused him to be more depressed. And we were concerned. And one day he took me home, gave me a ride home from uh, school and dropped by. We got a suit, his suit. He picked up his suit. Um, and then we went by to my home. He dropped me off. He said, Ron, will you pray for Mrs. Kaufman and me this weekend? And I said, well, I always pray for you, Dr. Kaufman. And he goes, yeah, but this is going to be a particularly tough weekend. I said, okay, I'll pray for you. And when I got back to school on Monday, I found out that he'd taken a gun and shot himself, killed himself. Um, it's one of those things that I don't think I've, I've gotten over yet. It was just such a shock because he was a person I'd put up on such a high pedestal. But it just shows that it can happen to anybody. And I, I went, and you know what I did? I thought of this. I thought of this very psalm, you know, book, this lament that we're talking about. And I, I wrote a poem. And I don't know where it is. But I entitled it, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Maybe you want to write something like that. Who are the mighty who have fallen? The teacher? Um, friend that maybe has died or somebody took, took their life or somebody who um, died of a horrible death or maybe it was your, you know, divorce a lot of times people come to me they were, you know, there was divorce in their background or just some kind of pain or, or hurt in your life that you haven't yet faced and I, I'd encourage you to face it and write it down get it out on paper if you possibly can write it down if you're good at writing poetry or songs do that um, some people say, well, I, I don't write, and I, I, that's fine, because then you don't have to, I don't get much criticism from those people. They don't ever write me anything. But, um, but I'll tell you what, 
I encourage you to try writing, and if not, just talk to somebody. Get somebody you can talk to. Pour your grief out. You got to get it out of yourself. And so that's what I'd encourage you to do. The second thing is have your pals. I love the example of David and, and Jonathan. Um, you know, Jonathan was probably about 11 years older than David. Jonathan was the prince born into the household of the king. Jonathan was the hero of Israel. David was the peasant boy, the shepherd boy, born into the little village of Bethlehem. And somehow, in God's unique timing and place, these two men came together and became best friends. Totally different. And yet God brought them together. And God wants to do that in our relationships with one another. Um, Guys with guys and gals with gals. I was thinking about examples of this through the years, and a friend of mine reminded me recently of the old movie. Now, this is an old TV movie. It's one of the most popular TV movies in history, but it's seldom seen anymore. It's probably pretty dated. Um, But remember Brian's song? Anybody remember Brian's song? Okay, that's an old movie with uh, Billy D. Williams and uh, James Caan when they were young and still cutting their teeth in, in acting. But the, the movie's a true story. It's a true story. Back in the 1960s, the Chicago Bears and the NFL had two guys came to play for them. Both tried out for running back. And one was um, Gail Sayers, probably one of the most gifted athletes ever to play in the NFL, uh, who was a black man who was very intense and very competitive, but very, very shy and from very black culture. And then the other guy was um, Brian Piccolo, who was uh, Italian and very gregarious and very uh, outspoken and rough around the edges and not as gifted athletically, but a guy who would just give you his heart and soul. And the two competed against each other. And guess what? Somehow they ended up as roommates and they just didn't like each other at all. But what happened is Sayers easily won the job, but Piccolo, they made him a fullback and the blocking back for Sayers. And they began working together. And these two guys became friends. And then Sayers' knee was ruined. And his career was essentially over. But for the first time in history, he became the first guy they surgically repaired and put back on the field. And it was extremely painful in those days. And he had to have his knee, you know, all worked over. And the guy who got him through was Piccolo. Piccolo got on him and worked with him and pulled him through that. And then in the end... He wins, Thayer's won the George Hallis Award, and he won that award for his courage. And as he's winning that award, he finds out that Piccolo is dying of cancer. It's a true story. And Sayers hated to speak in public, um, but he had to speak. So he goes in to give this speech. We don't have the video of it anymore. We have the transcripts, and they at, Billy D. Williams acts it out. And it's probably the height of the whole movie to hear what he says, his masculinity, and yet his emotion, his passion for his relationship with his friends. So we're going we're gonna to play that clip for you right now and bring back some old memories, and you'll catch a gl- glimpse of their, the famous song that went along with it that was very haunting. I'd like to say a few words about a guy I know, a friend of mine. His name is Brian Piccolo. And he has the heart of a giant. And that rare form of courage which allows him to kid himself and his opponent. Cancer. He has a mental attitude which makes me proud to have a friend who spells out courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. 
And you flatter me by giving me this award. But I say to you here now, Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. He's mine tonight. And Brian Piccolo is tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. Still a pretty touching scene. Um, theologically, I think he's saying at the end there just to pray that he will experience God's love in his life. My understanding is I think Sayers uh, is in a relationship with Jesus. Um, but that's what relationships are like. My buddy uh, um, who mentored me in college, we were talking the other day on the phone, and um, another guy they have a great relationship with, he was a star football player and baseball player in high school and college. And he said, and he works now with young men and kind of coaches them and trains them for life. And he said, that, that scene really captures masculine, authentic manhood today. Um, and we need men, you know, we're so frightened of being labeled, you know, as being, having, being homosexual. Men are a lot of times that we're afraid, you know, but in other cultures, men hold hands, they put their arms around each other, they hug each other, they kiss each other sometimes. You know, I'm not saying that we should do that. That's not our culture. Um, but we're afraid to even say nice words to each other, you know, and we need those kinds of relationships. We need... Guys and gals, we need to stand by each other, and we need to be willing to die for each other. When you are living for something, like they had football, good. You know, that was something they committed themselves to. But there's, we have something bigger than football here. We have a life here that we're living for something bigger than ourselves. Are we willing to die for what we believe in? Do we have other people that will stand by our sides with us in that process? When you go through hard times with people, when you see people suffer, the hardships of life, when you see people die and go through different things, that's when you build those kinds of relationships. It's not as dramatic as it is on television. A lot of times it's just one step at a time. The main issue is being present, being present in one another's lives. You do that when you get involved in small groups. You do that when you get involved in one-on-one -on -one accountability groups. You do that when you do life with people and when you do different things where you can help them. So I, I just strongly encourage you to have that relationship with other guys and with other gals uh, in your life and to go deep with them. And it's painful when you lose somebody. Like, you know, ultimately, Gail Sayers lost Brian Piccolo, and that's, he wrote a book that led to, this, to the movie. Um, and David lost Jonathan. But look at the relationship that they had, the depth of the relationship that they had in the process, which made it worth it. And they'll be with them again in heaven. If you don't know Jesus Christ... Uh, then I encourage you to give your life to him. Come and talk to us if you'd like to today because that makes all the difference in the world when you're surrendered into a personal relationship with him. And so it, I want you, another thing for do for homework this week is go and read um, Titus chapter 1 because we're going to be looking at that next because what's happened here, if you just realized it, is David is now king. 
He's going to become king of Judah. It's complicated before he becomes the full king of Israel, but for all intents and purposes, the prophecy is fulfilled. And David's wait is over. And so is our series on wait. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that the wait is over for David. I know for some of us, maybe the wait is over. Maybe something's been accomplished this week that just was really fulfilling. And if not, I um, pray that that wait would come to an end. Um, Lord, we know sometimes tragedy is in the midst of a long wait, especially during um, warfare and particularly difficult times. And I pray that you would comfort us. I don't know where everybody's at, but I pray that they would somehow bring comfort. You'd bring comfort to their hearts today and encouragement um, from the things that we've talked about. And pray that if people don't know you, that they would, uh, or are not committing their lives and following you like they should, that they would come and talk with us today, that they might find healing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.